following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Thank you, Kristen, and thanks to everybody who's been involved in the, the service today, which really is all of you. You don't have to be using the microphone or being up front to be part of what it means for us to worship God together. One way to understand the word liturgy, which is what, you know, it's like a sort of a fancy word for worship, is as the work of the people. And thank you for your work today. So in our church's membership class, which I know some of you have taken, and you'll probably remember this, we have uh, in that class a fairly significant section on church history. Right? I like to jokingly say that we're going to spend about an hour and cover everything from the creation of the universe up to the present day. <laughs> and we try to cover the, you know, with the broad strokes, all of church history. And to set up that section of the class, because they're about to hear from me for a long time, um, I have no idea why that whoop happened, but it was an artisan whoop. Um, <laughs> Because they're going to be hearing from me so much, I always ask people at the, at the outset of that section to um, share something about their extended family. Uh, like, who's the most interesting or noteworthy ancestor you have? And I was thinking about that, how I ask that every time, and I was trying to think back to some of the most remarkable answers. So one person, uh, I don't remember how long ago this was now, one person had a Civil War general in their family history, somebody who led the Union troops um, in the Civil War. Another person, um, maybe a little less positive of an example, had a family member, you know, a couple generations before who had been a notorious criminal, hadn't been discovered his whole life until the very end of his life. He was discovered to be this person who had perpetuated all these crimes. Uh, one person told us that they had a famous inventor in their family, and this story would be more believable if I could remember what that person invented, but I can't. You'll just have to trust me that it was really remarkable. <laughs> this famous inventor had, uh, was like the great-great-grandfather of somebody who was taking our membership course. But my favorite types of stories when I ask this question are actually not the ones about very famous ancestors. My favorite stories are the ones uh, who are like just regular members of the family whose fame, whose significance, whose uh, remarkable deeds are really only known and have meaning for the family itself. And sometimes that means that there's a family member who was like a true hero within the family, you know, saved the life of a child who would, had done something risky or something like that. But sometimes it's also that the, this person is famous and is sort of like infamous within the family because they've done something really awful that ripped the family apart and the, the ripples are being feel, still felt generations later. It's, it's interesting to me, though, that pretty much everybody has a story they can share. Some of you might be thinking of a story right now, and we don't have time for you to share your ancestor stories in the service out loud at the moment. You could tell me afterwards. That's what Pastor Jesse says when the kids are getting too talkative. Can you tell me about that later? <laughs> it's, such a it's like a total boss move. I love it. Um, but you could tell me about your family's uh, famous people later. I would actually would love to hear that. 
Some of you are like, oh man, I was hoping he would ask for examples because I have a family member who's got this amazing story. Um, and then some of you are like, oh, please don't call on me, please don't call on me, please don't call on me because I do have a story. There is someone in my family who is famous and I want nothing to do with that history. What they're famous for is not something I'm proud of at all. I actually wish I wasn't related to them in the first place. And I know there are some of you in the room who have that kind of family history too. I know that there are some of you for whom your immediate family growing up um, created a terrible place to be a child. I know that there are some of you who experienced abuse and rejection, all kinds of mistreatment at the hands of the very people who should have cared for you most. And that's not right. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I know that sometimes those instances of abuse and mistreatment were framed with religious language, which is something that people tend to carry like a curse when that happens to them. Some of our family history is great and we're super proud of it. And some of our family history is not so great and we're actually ashamed of it. But what occurs to me today is that both sides of that coin play a part in shaping us into who we are today. Which is to say that if everything was always easy in our lives, we probably wouldn't grow nearly as much or as quickly. And there are instances, no doubt, in each one of your pasts that you would wish had never happened and yet you would not be the person you are today if they hadn't. And that is the mixed bag of thinking back into our history. Which is exactly what we're going to do in the context of the church today. Because we're starting, uh, we started last week a new sermon series called Foundations, talking about the five foundational values that have defined Artisan Church's character for our whole life since we were founded in 2005. And if you know those five values, you can say them along with me in Wi-Fi password order. Awe, beauty, roots, community, and justice. Now, if if it's your first time here, you're like, wow, this is a cult. (laughs) I won't make you chant anything else for the rest of the day. Awe, beauty, roots, community, justice. These are the five values that have really shaped us into who we are. And when we face a difficult decision as a community, we don't know whether we should choose option A or option B. One of the most important uh, processes we undertake to make that decision is to consider these five values, awe, beauty, roots, community, and justice, and ask ourselves, since this is what we believe God gave us to be our character as a church, which option, A or B, will be a better reflection of those values? Which option, A or B, will be setting us up to continue to live out those values in a deeper and more meaningful way? We kicked off this series last week with the value of community. And today, we're going to do the value of roots. You can tell we're not doing it in Wi-Fi password order. So I'm going to put the the roots value definition on the screen and read it to you now so you can know what we are talking about. This is what we say. We are deeply rooted in the historic Christian faith as revealed in Scripture and worked out in the life of God's people through the ages. Now, that little bit of um, robot barf up there is... uh, 
the QR code that if you were to scan it with your phone would take you directly to an online version of a PDF that the people of Artisan Church created in 2019 without any input from me because I was on sabbatical at the time. This was the last time the Artisan community went through our five foundational values on Sunday mornings. And the people of the church developed these values kits. They're little study guides in PDF form. And you can scan that PDF and it'll take you right to the digital version of the kit if you want to see it. Um, or you can go to artisanchurch.com slash about. It gives you our five values, and there's a link to each one of these values kits that were made. And I do have some printouts up here. Um, so if you would like a physical copy that you can scribble on, you can talk to me afterwards. Or actually, probably I should just put them, I'll just put them on this table, and you can get one whenever you want, because I might forget otherwise. So I'm going to ask our slides presenter to keep that definition of roots on the screen throughout what I'm about to say because um, you might want to refer to it. When I teach this value, you, if you were at our newcomers reception last week, you heard me say this just seven days ago. So no spoiling if you know the answer to this quiz question that I'm about to give you, which is, there is a word in this value statement, it's a very simple, basic, not exciting word, that is nevertheless very important to understanding the ways in which this value makes our church, if not truly unique, certainly quite unusual in our particular stream of the Christian faith. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? As usual, the answer to that question is no idea. Right? Can you see a little word in that sentence that's, as the kids say, that word is doing a lot of work in that sentence? Any guesses? Anybody want to be brave? It's the word and. I, I'm telling you, I've never had anybody get this right on the first guess. And it happened in 9 a.m. and it happened just now at 11 a.m. Thank you. Um, brilliant. We have such, the, uh, the artisan IQ is just going up and up every, every year. <laughs> no, the word and, why is that an important word in this statement of values? Because we are not Roman Catholic, we are not Eastern Orthodox, we are from the Protestant tradition, and even though we don't use the E word to define ourselves because we've, we've noticed a little bit of toxicity within the evangelical world, especially recently. We don't use that word, but it is actually our people. That is the stream of faith that we, we kind of were born out from and into. And people from that stream of the Christian faith do not put an and after the Bible. Right? Most Protestant belief, in fact, Protestantism was, Protestantism was a movement that started in part because there was too much and after the Bible. There was too much church authority being abused. There was too much extra stuff that was being tacked on. And part of the Protestant movement was to say, no, we are going back to the Bible and that is it for us. That's all well and good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's all well and good until it's not. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But for us, there is the word and, because the, we cannot understand our faith only with the Bible. We always must recognize that we live out our faith in the context of the history and tradition of the church. Now, if you're, if you're still kind of going, well, I'm not so sure about that, Pastor, let me tell you this. Let me ask you this. If you want to use just the Bible, my question for you is, which books in the Bible. Well, that's easy, Pastor. Just open it up. 
There's 66. Starts with Genesis. Genesis goes on to Revelation. There's uh, 64 others in there that we all memorized in Sunday school. That's all we need. And my answer to you is to remind you, if you didn't know already, to tell you for the first time, that that particular assortment, assortment of books was not assembled in that particular order with just those 66 books until the year 381 A.D., or C.E., if you prefer, because we only got this collection of books organized and called the Bible from the history and tradition of the church. Now, don't mishear me. These books were not written in the 4th century. They were written much earlier than that. That's part of what gives them authority and weight. But they were not assembled as the Bible until the 4th century of the church's existence. Contrary to popular opinion, it did not fall out of the sky in its current form on Billy Graham's birthday. (laughs) Or C.S. Lewis's birthday, or whoever you want. Whoever's your person. Intellectuals are like, oh, Billy Graham. (laughs) But this is one of the things that makes artisan unusual, is that we... We acknowledge that fact, and in fact, we, we find value and depth and meaning in the history and tradition of the church, which is actually much more common in other church traditions than in ours. And so today's scripture readings, which you have heard and will hear, all try to point us toward that roots value. In fact, the, the verse from Jeremiah 6 16. That is hard to say, by the way. Jeremiah 6.16. It's on page 6.16 in the Bible. Did you notice that in our red Bibles? Jeremiah 6.16 is kind of one of the key verses for understanding artisan's roots value. And it says this, thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. We stop it right there, usually, even though verse 16 goes on to say, but they would not walk in it. (laughs) The people rejected the ancient paths where the good way lies, and we still reject the ancient path where the good way lies. But if people who are um, acknowledging our rootedness in the tradition and history of the Christian religion, which actually puts our roots all the way back into Judaism, we want to find those ancient paths Not only acknowledge them, but seek them out and travel them because that is where the Lord says the good way lies. Later on at the benediction to service today, you'll hear something from uh, the letter uh, from 2 Thessalonians where Paul says, So then, brothers and sisters, siblings, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. So what's interesting to me there is that he's saying that the tradition of the church is not just the part of it that was written down, it's the part of it that was the telling of the story and the retelling of the story and the contextualizing of the gospel in new communities. And that's part of our history and that's part of the tradition that we are instructed in the words of scripture to hold fast to. It's as if the writers of the scriptures already knew that the tradition of the church was going to be so important to the people who would embrace this religion, this this faith in Jesus. So what this means for us, I mean, there's all kinds of like um, practical things that this means for us. I mean, today I deliberately selected, with one exception, all songs that were written like at least decades ago and in some cases well over 100 years ago. 
Um, it's something, something that we haven't done very much lately that I'd like to get back to doing is having some readings from the ancient church, from the church fathers and mothers. So much of um, my understanding of the scriptures comes from reading the critique of the scriptures that was given by the early church Christians. And it gives us a richness and depth that I would be lacking otherwise. I'd be impoverished. And I'd like to get that back into our liturgy at some point. That's on a practical level. But on another, probably more important level, what this means is that there is actually some real authority to be found for us in the tradition of the church. We can't just make up our own way together as a community and call it good. This is similar to and an extension of what I said last week when we were talking about the community value. If you were here, do you remember how I said that there is no version of Christianity that can be practiced alone? That Christianity is always a we, it's never a me. That well over half of the pronouns in the, in the Bible that, that are you pronouns are plural you, which we don't have a very good version of in English, in this part of the country anyway. Just as there's no version of Christianity that is practiced alone, there is also no version of Christianity that is practiced separate from the history and tradition of the church. Now, this does not mean that you can never depart from tradition. You just have to be extremely careful and cautious when you do so. As most of you will already know, at Artisan Church, we have made an intentional divergence from the received tradition, from the overwhelming majority view and practice within the Christian church in the form of our LGBTQ inclusion statement. We have made an intentional divergence from... uh, from the history and tradition of the majority of the Christian church. But we did that with great care and intention. I want to tell you a little bit about how that happened because not all of you know the story. I think for most of us, and I know for myself, it began with experiencing the intimacy and risks of community. We started with community last week. When you get a community of people together and you start to love people and entrust your lives to them and they entrust their lives to you and then one or more of them tell them something, tell you something about themselves that is true and has always been true, that does not square with your understanding of scripture, your interpretation of the Bible, that doesn't seem consistent with the way you have been taught the faith that's been handed down to you through generations in the roots and history of the church, when that happens, when those two things come into apparent contradiction with each other, what you ought to do is what the early church did when that same thing happened, which is to say, the Holy Spirit seems to be doing some work here that I wouldn't expect. Let's go back to our scriptures and re-examine them and see if it's possible that we missed something. Let's interrogate our own traditions and see if perhaps they maybe are carrying with them something that's not part of what God intended. 
So, in the early church, that looked like the Christians, who were all part of the Jewish tradition, noticing that for some reason the Holy Spirit was falling onto Gentiles and filling them with God's presence, which was not something expected from their tradition, certainly, and was not expected in any way by their interpretation of their own scriptures. In other words, a religious leader in the early church, faced with the idea of having to include Gentiles into this religious movement, could justifiably have said, the plain reading of the Bible is that these people are not welcome among us. It's not that God doesn't love them, it's just that they can't really be part of us in that way, you see. Some of them wanted to do that. Those people lost the argument. Those who won the argument were the ones who said, who are we to police what the Holy Spirit does? How could I possibly withhold the waters of baptism from someone who has clearly received the gifts of the Holy Spirit already, was what church leaders said. And a similar thing happened to me as a pastor, as a Christian, and happened among us as well, when we began to interrogate our tradition and re-examine our scriptures in light of the fact that many, many, many queer people were part of our church, were exhibiting the gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit, were blessing us and making our community stronger and richer, And we knew, roots being one of our foundational values, that it was not going to be appropriate simply to turn on a dime and change everything. It required some time and work. And I'll hasten to add that if you're a person whose identity results in your marginalization from a spiritual religious community, you're not so interested in taking, let's take our time and figure this out. Let's go real slow. I acknowledge that that moved too slowly in some ways. But I also think it's important that we went as slowly as we did because, for the most part, our community stayed together and still exists as part of, as, as, the, as the byproduct of the care that we took. And so if you've felt welcomed as an LGBTQ plus person into our community in the last year, it's in part that we're still here because we went as slowly as we did. I learned at the 9 a.m. service, by the way, that, that this uh, detail, which is important for me to give to you, results in me having to cut off and hasten through the end of my sermon. Just know that I'm going to talk faster at the end because sometimes you go slowly in the middle. This process actually took us years. It was two full years, two years and two and a half months, if I'm remembering correctly, between our first conversation as a church about gender, sexuality, and inclusion and the passage and publication of our first LGBTQ inclusion statement between May of 2015 and July of 2017 was the time that we spent pondering this and contemplating it and thinking about it. And then it was another four years until 2021 that we passed our uh, new and current version of inclusion statement that had a fully inclusive marriage policy. And again, looking back, especially receiving the blessings that we have in our community from from the individuals who are most deeply affected by this, we would snap our fingers and change everything uh, in that second. But that is actually not how history works, not recent history and, and not ancient history. The point that I want to make is that people who affirm a roots as a foundational value 
must be willing to move slowly and with great care and determination and deliberation whenever they slash we are considering stepping outside of the tradition of the church because that's something that we've affirmed as foundational to us. But I certainly don't want to give you the impression that valuing roots and tradition and history is always a burden or a weight or a cause to slow you down or to uh, restrict the speed with which the Holy Spirit is allowed to move in your community. In fact, quite the opposite. The church's tradition points us often to something else. And also I would say that, you know, the tradition of the church is not just a bunch of old dead white guys, right? I mean, there are a lot of old dead white guys in the history of the church, um, and they, I'm going to be one someday. <laughs> so that's not like that's bad. But if you're a person who craves more diversity in the voices, know that that exists in the history of the church, because guess what? Just as the Bible didn't drop out of the sky in its current form on Billy Graham's birthday, the Christian religion was not born in middle America. You know, on a farmhouse, which is kind of like the the place that I grew up. By the way, the the Billy Graham place is also where I grew up in my faith. I'm not I'm I'm being silly and and trying to be funny, but I'm not I'm not hating on that at all. The Christian religion was birthed in the Middle East, and so it is very uh, Eastern. It's Asian. It's African, and if you go back far enough, you find those voices having preeminence. It's only later that it began to look a lot more like me. If you're a person who, and I'm one of them, who is inclined toward mysticism and weirdness, you might find a lot of value in the desert fathers, these um, hermits and mystics who went off into the desert and wrote stuff down. It's, it's very not, um, not something that you would typically be read in church, to be honest with you. If you're a person who's inclined toward women's empowerment, you might look into the history of the church and discover that even though the early Christian church was maybe not as um, uh, embracing and lifting up of women's voices as we would set as the bar for the 21st century, they were much more embracing and lifting up of women's voices than the contemporary culture around them. And the early Christian movement played an enormous role in the expansion of women's voices. If you're a person who's inclined toward... uh, Works of charity and healthcare, especially, you might be interested to know about the church's history in developing sanitariums and early medical facilities. I could go on and on and tell you about the deep roots of our Christian tradition and all the meaning you might find in it. But because the roots of our religion are not just deep like the, like the roots of a, of a redwood tree, but they're actually also wide like the mycelium of a mushroom colony. We can exhibit this fundamental foundational value of roots by looking also to the global church today because it's broad, not just deep. And in our recent history as a people, we might look to the voices of enslaved Africans. We might look to and listen for the voices of oppressed Chinese Christians. We might look all around and listen all around for the voices of the poor and marginalized people that banded together and blended together to create a worldwide movement that is continuing to thrive today. And these voices can and do speak 
profoundly to us, even as we acknowledge, as I think we must, the problematic way that sometimes the gospel was carried to them. And here's where we think back as a people into our history, into our story, and we acknowledge the fact that it's not all sunshine and roses. It's not all pretty. We have the Crusades in our history. We have slavery being justified by the pages of Scripture. By the way, one of the most powerful movements for me in my personal move toward LGBTQ affirmation and inclusion was reading the sermons of Southern Christian pastors who were using the pages of Scripture to justify slavery as an institution, who were saying things like, it is the natural order of humankind that some people are enslaved by others. It's the plain reading of Scripture. It's uncanny how similar the arguments sound. Mark Knoll wrote a book about this. I cannot remember the title of it, but it's, it's incredibly powerful. If you're interested in that, catch me after and I'll show you the book. We have to recognize that our quest for global evangelism was sometimes carried on the same ships that were conducting missions of colonialism and imperialism. All of this is true. Our history is not all perfect, just as your family history is not all perfect. But because of the history of your family making you the person you are today, maybe you can think back to the church's history and look at the good and the bad and say, all of those things have brought us to where we are as a people today. And there are certain parts of it that we would wish had never happened. There are certain relatives in our church and ancestral religious history that we wish we were not connected to at all. But we are. And so I'll leave you with this. This is the part I'm going to have to speed through. It's very poor pastoral etiquette to speed through the gospel part of the sermon. But I was reading the gospel of John, John 15, um, which is where Jesus uh, talk, tells his disciples and, and talks about a vine and branches. And he says, I'm the true vine and you are the branches. Abide with me and I will abide with you. Every branch that abides in the, in, or every vine that abides in the branches bears good fruit. And if you look up the word abide uh, in the Gospel of John, which just means live with or remain or stay with, it's not the first time he uses that word. Jesus also talks about the, uses the word abide when he's, when he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit to tell the people when the Spirit comes, you will be blessed by the presence of God. You will abide with God and God will abide with you. And then if you go all the way back to John 6, he uses the word abide in one of my favorite teachings that Jesus ever gave. Because I love when Jesus makes everybody so mad they all leave. (laughs) In John chapter 6, he's done the feeding of the 5,000 and he's got a big following. Right? He's done this miracle of feeding 5,000 people with little baskets of bread and fish. And they're like, come on, let's see it. Come on, let's have some more. Jesus, got any more of that bread? And what Jesus says in John 6 is, um, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. <laughs> and it says something like, this was a hard teaching. <laughs> and thousands of them stopped following him. They're like, I think I know another itinerant rabbi. Let's, we'll come back. To, we'll come back. I'll see you next week, Jesus. And they're out of there. 
it's a dramatic um, foreshadowing of the sacrament of Holy Communion, which we celebrate every week as part of our rootedness in the Christian tradition, and to which I invite you now, not as the table of artisan church, but as the table of the Lord Jesus, which is to be made ready for those who wish to know him more. Jesus said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and yes, it's, it's, it's October, but that's a little on the creepy side for church, isn't it? What Jesus said is, if you partake of my body, then I will live in you and you will live in me. And so I've got no business putting a fence around this table. Jesus laid it out. He put the meal down. It was his own body broken for you. It was his blood which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And if you are drawn to this table, it's not by me, it's by the Spirit of Christ. And I would never stop you from coming. In fact, I invite you to come as we sing these next couple of songs. You will notice, by the way, that for the first time since March of 2020, we have actual bread that's been cut up and put on plates and actual cups of juice and wine. And the instruction would be, if you use that format of communion, to take one of the pieces of bread and remember Christ's body, which was broken for you, dip it into the wine or the juice, and remember Christ's blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And you can eat that right there or take it back to your seats. I know not everybody is ready for uh, the fondue version of communion just yet. <laughs> it's actually called intinction. Um, so we do have the prepackaged cups as well, if you prefer that. I'm going to stop talking and pray that God's Spirit will work in spite of all my silliness. Abide with Jesus. This is the point I'm trying to make. I said I was going to stop talking. Ha! Huh. This is the point I'm trying to make. We love tradition, we love community, we love the Bible, but we don't worship any of those things. We worship Jesus. And if you are reading the Scriptures and not being pointed to Jesus, trust Jesus. If you are in a spiritual community and not being pointed to Jesus, trust Jesus. If you are looking at the tradition of the church and see something that doesn't look like Jesus, trust Jesus. Jesus wins. So, Come to communion, if you will, as we continue to sing. Um, and if you are a person who doesn't want to take communion, that's okay too. It's totally fine and okay to sit and observe and think or pray. But respond how the Spirit is leading you right now. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.